Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, one of the truisms about living in the great Northwest is that wherever you are, it doesn't take long to get out into the mountains. Whether we're from here or migrated here, we crow about the natural beauty and adventure that surround us. When most of us venture out into that wilderness, we do some basic preparation. We check the weather, we gear up, we mark our trail in some way so that we'll find our way back. We don't expect the worst, but for all our preparation and carefulness, sometimes the worst happens. In that moment, the thought of which we all dread somewhere in the back of our minds, who might be there to rescue us? One of the greatest yet least heralded elements of our region is the network of search and rescue volunteers who, yes, volunteer to aid others when they most need help. The situations they enter into are sometimes extremely uncomfortable and often dangerous. They do this while they could be, like most of us, relaxing in comfort at home. Why? It's complicated. Brie Lowen is such a volunteer. She also happens to be a talented writer. Her new book is Found, A Life in Mountain Rescue. She spoke at the Mountaineers Seattle Program Center at Magnuson Park on June 7th. This brief and fascinating opening presentation tells the story of the Mountaineers organization. Mountaineers. We are pioneers and adventurers. Explorers of the unexplored. We are groundbreakers. Founded in 1906 by 151 visionaries. At a time when a trip into our unmapped Pacific Northwest mountain ranges meant riding on a luggage car. Then picking an unnamed peak and finding our way to the top. With only a compass and a keen eye, half of the first mountaineers were women. They were veiled and wore long petticoats but summited mountains all the same. Mountaineers wore the first boots on the top of the Olympics and the first skis on Mount Rainier. We named peaks and explored waterways and built trails to uncover unique and challenging landscapes. We helped create the North Cascades Wilderness Area and passed the National Wilderness Act. Early mountaineers established methods for safe travel in the mountains. The same methods our volunteers still teach today. We wrote the book on mountaineering, literally. Our members founded REI, seeking better gear to take them further. Jim Whitaker, the first American on the summit of Mount Everest, and Fred Becky, the first dirtbag climber, are both mountaineers. Your grandparents were mountaineers. Your kids will be too. Mountaineers are generations of adventurers. Young and old, new and seasoned, eager learners and passionate teachers. The outdoors brings us together. The Pacific Northwest is our home. We aspire to inspire. With hundreds of monthly activities led by our coalition of volunteers. We hike, ski, climb, and paddle. We sail and snowshoe and scramble. We capture and savor. We can serve. We go outside to inspire curiosity and self-discovery. To feel small. To unlock our true potential. And release the burdens of every day. We lose ourselves in the outdoors. We find ourselves there too. We are the Pacific Northwest. We are Mountaineers. 
Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Be Wild, where we bring passion adventure to this very stage. Thank you so much for choosing to not be outside and coming inside tonight. Um, I'm Andriana Fletcher. I'm the events manager here, and it gives me so much joy to see a lot of people at our events, so thank you for making my job easy and fun. Um, so we just watched a beautiful moving video about the Mountaineers, but if you didn't catch it, uh, the Mountaineers has been around for 111 years, and woo, yes, thank you, that's the correct response. <laughs> and we are so passionate about getting people outside. We have a deep love for the outdoors, um, whether it's exploration or education, and what makes us so unique is that all of our volunteers are the ones teaching our courses. They're the ones making sure that they're teaching responsible, recreation and stewardship to inspire safe, fun adventure and to ensure that our wild places stay forever wild. We're an organization about education, exploration, and conservation, and proceeds from tonight's Be Wild helps make us be that way. So thank you very much for coming out and supporting all of that. And without further ado, to get things rolling, I'd like to introduce you to tonight's MC, our very own Kate Rogers. Uh, Kate is the editor-in-chief at Mountaineers Books. She acquires, develops all the books that we publish and oversees all of our editorial and production processes, and we couldn't ask for a more perfect MC tonight. So please join me in welcoming Kate. <laughs> Hello. Uh, so this uh, Be Wild Speaker Series program marks our kickoff event in support of Brie Lowen's book, new book, Found, A Life in Mountain Rescue. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Brie's book is available for purchase in the back of the room, and she will be signing copies later this evening. And as Andriana mentioned, uh, Brie also has generously agreed to donate uh, her portion of sales tonight to Seattle Mountain Rescue a critically important group that has been supporting all of us in our wilderness adventures since 1948 and for which Bree serves on the board. So thank you, SMR, so much for being here tonight. A big clap. Part of the Mountaineers organization, Mountaineers Books, is a nonprofit and independent publisher based right here in Seattle. We publish about 35 books a year across a wide range of topics, including personal narratives such as found, as well as outdoor guidebooks like our popular day hiking series and our flagship title, Mountaineering the Freedom of the Hills. We also publish mountaineering and outdoor adventure stories, natural histories, outdoor photography, sustainable practice at home and on the trail, conservation, and much more. After nearly 60 years of award-winning publishing, we have more than 700 titles available. And you can find all of our books at the Program Center Bookstore here, and also at bookstores, both virtual and brick and mortar across the country. I first met Brie Lowen about 10 years ago when she was a young writer and getting started with both her writing career and her rescue career. In 2009, Mountaineers Books actually published her first book, the critically acclaimed Pickets and Dead Men, Seasons on Mount Rainier, or I'm sorry, Seasons on Rainier, about her three, year, three seasons as a climbing ranger at the park. At the time, Rock and Ice Magazine wrote in its review, incredibly compelling reading. Pickets and Dead Men is engaging, honest, and often painful. Those words, compelling, engaging, honest, painful, are frequently used to describe Bree's writing. 
as are the words thoughtful, elegant, darkly funny. In the intervening years between the two books, Brie has grown and evolved. She has become a wife and a mother, as well as an experienced and confident search and rescue volunteer. In fact, one of the great pleasures I found in reading Found is getting this small glimpse of the volunteer search and rescue community. It's hard not to be inspired by their outdoor skills and what can only be described as their true grit. These men and women regularly risk their lives and all for no pay and no glory. Bree's writing reveals the camaraderie and closeness she feels among these folks, and as you might imagine, also features a good dose of adrenaline. We are taken on rescue and recovery events that are equally intense, remarkable, and exhausting, and that's all just for the reader. Her book also exhibits a deeply felt sense of place with evocative descriptions of the Cascades wilderness that many of you will recognize. Throughout the story shared here, Brie continues to explore what draws us into the mountains, the definition of family, and the nature of risk, all in clear, fearless, and graceful prose. As an editor, I'm proud of all the books we publish, but I am particularly proud to be able to share such a beautiful, strong, and distinctly female voice with the larger outdoor community and with all of you here tonight. So please join me in welcoming Brie Lowen. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, so I went to Steve Swenson's talk, uh, which was, he was the last speaker for the Be Wild series. And, um, and I don't know if any of you guys had the opportunity to make it to that talk, but it was unbelievable. He, um, he talked about the Karakorum and K2 and some of the most mind-blowing first ascents. Uh, it, was, it was so inspiring, and, and I was so psyched to go out there and climb, you know, the biggest mountains and the biggest ranges in the world. I was like, yeah, it's like happening. But at the same time, like, I was sitting in my seat and I was like, and I'm going to follow that, <laughs> which, which, which is awesome, you know, but like, the thing is that I can't talk about doing first ascents in the Karakorum because I've never even been to the Karakorum. And in fact, what I'm going to talk about tonight is Mount Sai. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, but don't leave yet, because I, I, can, I, can, I can pull it off. Okay, because here's the thing. Here's the thing that I got from Steve's talk that I thought was so amazing, right? Like, Steve totally, totally, rapturously loves the Karakorum. And even more than that, like, he loves the people that live at the base of those mountains. And I love the Cascades with equal, if not more, passion. And I love, love the people that live at the base of these mountains. And I think that sometimes as Seattleites, we can think that we're like more urban, but like honestly, like we live at the base, we are mountain people. Like that's, that's who we are. And like we, 
we need to own that in a real way and be intensely proud. Like, I, I just, I think it's amazing. So yeah, like, I, I want to talk about this place. Um, I think, I think the Cascades themselves have, it, it's, it's intangible, but it's there, right? Like, they have, they have their own magic. And I, I know that we've all felt it when, when we've been out in the wilderness. Um, and I think, you know, this here, this may not be the proving ground for, for hard alpinism, maybe. But because we don't have anything to prove, being the people that live here, like that, that makes us so awesome. Um, we're, we're awesome in the summer. Uh, we're, we're awesome in the winter. Yeah, we're, we're like, we're awesome all the time. And, and I, think that, I think that we're really compassionate people, too. I think that really compassionate people just sort of grow out of the mud here because, because they just realize how slippery life can really be. And, and I know that like this room is completely full of people who go out when it's 38 degrees and raining. And yeah, I, I know you guys do. And, and you're gonna go up like nasty, slimy, chossy gullies in the pouring rain with like serious fog and no view. And you're gonna get to the top and there is not gonna be a summit photo. Or if there is, it's just gonna be you with a whiteout, you know? <laughs> and, and the thing is that I think that's, that's so pure, right? Because you're not doing it for the Facebook photo because it's not gonna be worth it, honestly, like let's face it. And it's not even probably going to be something worth posting on Cascade Climber. <laughs> but, but you're getting out there because you just really want to be out there, you know? And, and I think you, you're getting out there because you really want to get out there with other people who are willing to get out there when it's 38 degrees and raining. Even if you never get to the top of anything, right? <laughs> like, it's still, it's still so much fun. Uh, I, think, I think that sharing hardship and sharing failure, but sharing hardship really helps create camaraderie. Um, and I think that really knowing how to suffer, actually, you know, that's so easily translatable to the rest of your life. Like, that comes in handy all the time, right? And, uh, and so my absolute favorite part of being in the mountains, like anywhere, but like especially here, is that it's just such an amazing venue for being able to connect with other people. Like you could, you could share a cubicle with someone or share a, other, a wall of a cubicle with someone for like five years, right? And you're never really going to get to know that person in a real way. But you spend one forced bivy with them, like, like you're snuggled up for a couple of hours, you know, and it's too cold to really sleep. Like, you're going to find out all the details of their hopes and dreams. Like, you're going to know everything about their marriage that you didn't really want to know. <laughs> and, and, you know, all the little quirky foibles, which could be awesome, like, or their weird hygiene tactics, which may not be awesome. Uh, you know, that they won't eat the red Skittles because they think those ones cause cancer, but, like, all the other ones are fine. Like, there's so many, so much... So much stuff that can happen while sharing, like, one bivy. And so, if, if climbing with uh, another person in the Pacific Northwest can be an amazing venue for friendship, like, 
what I get to do with Seattle Mountain Rescue, just, it really, it can take that to the next level. Uh, so I, I really get to share space with people in some of the darkest times of their lives. It's not just a force bivy, but you know, when they're really hurt or really lost and, and can't get out without help, like they, they call me and uh, that's, that's such a gift, right? Because I'm, I'm able, or at least my goal is to be able to forge that same kind of connection. Um, and it's, it's just, it's so amazing to be able to see that. And, um, and I wanted to be able to write about that feeling. But uh, I, I ran into two problems, uh, one legal one and uh, one ideological one. So the legal one is with HIPAA, the Healthcare Insurance and Portability Act. Uh, that says that if you uh, talk about the details of someone's gory crash and burn accident, that you're liable for a $50,000 fine in a year in prison. Not j they specified not jail too, they said prison. <laughs> and I didn't sound good. And then I've been in EMT for 20 years and I'm currently in nursing school. And I'm pretty sure that my professors wouldn't have been super psyched on that either. So, so that's the legal problem. But then I think just ideologically, more, much more even than the legal reason, like I, I can never speak for another person. Like I can never really know what someone else is feeling. Uh, and I, I know you guys have probably all seen this, but there's an amazing two-minute uh, Renee Brown video that I, I really want to show because it really exemplifies this a little bit more than, uh, than I can talk about it. So let me just show this really quickly. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's a, it, very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling rarely if ever does an empathic response begin with at least I had a yeah and we do it all the time because you know what someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. 
I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So she's great. Um, but uh, but I, can't, I, can't, I can't do it, right? I can't talk about how someone else feels. But, uh, but then I thought what I, what I can do is actually write about my crew <laughs> because, first off, it's really unlikely that they're going to sue me, um, which is great. Uh, but then I can just, it, it gives me such an amazing opportunity to write about how gratifying, like how unbelievably stoked we are to be able to go out into the wilderness and rescue lost and injured people. Like it's, it's, it's amazing. And, um, and so I, I have a short reading from the book that I want to read to you guys that kind of exemplifies that. And, um, and this, this reading, it's, it's about Maddie P., and how, we got to get a raise of the hands here. How many people here know Maddie P? Yeah, so like basically everybody except like these people. But that's, but that's okay. Like you guys are going to know Maddie P soon. Um, but until then, I'll just give you a little bit of background on Maddie P. Uh, he's been part of the Mountaineers and Seattle Mountain Rescue for a really long time. He's, uh, he's a teacher, but he's about to take a year-long sabbatical in his Westphalia and go climbing. Yeah, I see him in the back. He's like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, and then just a little tiny bit of other background about this story. So like Kate mentioned, uh, I'm married. I've been married for 10 years to my husband, Russell, and I've got a daughter, Vivian. Hey, Vivian. Um, and then Russell and I take turns uh, going on rescues and then taking care of the Viblet, especially when the parents are out of town. Um, so, and then the other two people that appear in this story are Patrick. Hey, Patrick, where are you? And then uh, Larry, oh, he's over there, who's SMR's chairman. It was Russell's turn to go. So he took off towards Alpental to go help the ice climber who fell 30 feet when his anchor failed. In between melting butter and helping Vivian separate eggs for the waffles, I started calling the roster, hoping to scrounge up more people. But everybody knows my number, and, and they know that if they pick up the phone that I'm going to rope them into scrapping their evening plans and staying up all night, which is fine once or twice. But now lots of people won't pick up because they know that when you lose your life balance, like when you suddenly realize that your daughter doesn't expect you to read her a bedtime story anymore because she just assumes that you won't be home, then you're just as lost as the next 20-something in yoga pants who went hiking to see the sunset and didn't bring a flashlight. After I had tried everyone with last names A through O, Maddie P answered his phone. And I told him that he had to go because the team needed him. The texts from the King County Sheriff's Office said 30-foot fall, two broken legs, and going into shock. And they needed an EMT to be there right now. And I told him that that EMT was him. Okay, he said, I'm going. 
And I know that, even though it's hard to answer the phone, like there is still something awesome about having the person on the other end tell you about a life or death emergency where the team needs you immediately to stave off unimaginable disaster. And I enjoy making this phone call as much as I suspect that the person on the other end of the phone enjoys hearing it. Godspeed, I tell Maddie P. And he fumbles the phone, hangs up. I fold the egg whites in with the rest of the batter and plug in the waffle iron. Maddie P. was, in fact, the only EMT there, and he had to work alone at first while Larry coaxed a mess of cams into an icy crack and equalized them with a picket so that they could secure themselves and keep the climber from falling off the lower ice step while they got him onto the backboard. The helicopter finally arrived and whisked the climber away, and then everyone picked up their stuff and hiked back out. And I found out later that Maddie P. had been at work teaching physics at Seattle Prep when I'd called him, and he'd left so fast that he'd forgotten his wallet on his desk, which would have been mostly okay, except that halfway to Alpenthal, he was suddenly stuck with the gas pump nozzle in his empty gas tank. His car's gas light had been on since that morning, almost 30 miles ago in Seattle, and he knew that if he kept going, it was unlikely that he would make it to Alpenthal, but there was absolutely no way that he could get there and back again. But he, he had no time to think about any of that because the crew was going to leave without him. Uh, somebody was going to die if he didn't get there. So he figured that his car would just make it because it had to, and he would deal with the rest later. While they were hiking out after the climber was rescued, Matty P. asked Russell if he could borrow 20 bucks for gas, and Russell lent him the cash. There's a gas station at the summit, only a mile or two from Alpenthal, along with the summit central ski area and the pancake house and not much else. At midnight in December, it was all deserted, and Maddie P. coasted gratefully in, only to realize that the gas station building was closed and that you needed a credit card in order to pay at the pump. And after Maddie P. had sat in his cold car for five minutes without a plan, uh, Patrick fortuitously rolled up to get gas, too. And so Maddie P. walked over and asked if he could borrow Patrick's credit card. In exchange, Maddie P. said he would buy Patrick dinner at McDonald's in North Bend with Russell's 20 bucks on their way home. <laughs> Since they were starving and nothing else much is open in North Bend in the middle of the night. And Patrick said that that would be great since it was actually his birthday and he would appreciate a little party. <laughs> so then they both got gas and headed to McDonald's where they ran into Larry, who was already in line. And Matty P said that he would buy everybody dinner, except that he was a little short on cash, like <laughs> for three people and all. And so Larry gave Matty P 20 bucks and Matty P bought dinner for everybody and then they sat and had a birthday party for Patrick. Uh, so one other major tenet of found is, uh, is the real incongruity of loving incredibly disparate and time-consuming things and trying to be fully present for all of them at the same time. Uh, and that happens because I love SAR, but I really love the rest of my life, too. Uh, so like I said, I'm married and I have a daughter. Um, and uh, I'm a stay-at-home mom, or I was until Vivian started kindergarten, and she's in third grade now, and um, in those intervening years, I've been a volunteer firefighter, 
and a watershed inspector and a professional firefighter and a paramedic student and a hospice volunteer. I was on the board of Vivian's preschool. I was the first atheist chaplain for Eastside Fire. <laughs> I was the vice chair for the City of Carnation's planning board and now I'm two thirds of the way through nursing school and I wrote this book. And that, so that, that is, no, 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 here, look, that is not a brag list. Like, those are the things that I have failed at. Like, those are the things that I've either failed at or are clinging to by my fingernails in order to try to maintain this life and that one at the same time. It's, it's, it's intense. Um, some of them, like nursing school, fortunately, are still shakily pending. I, I hope to succeed at that, but I'll wait for applause until I, until I pull it off. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, well, actually, I take that back. Nursing school aside, I, I think that Eastside Fire may not have been ready for an atheist chaplain, so that may have been its own thing as well. Uh, but, but it's taken a long time to do these things. And I know that all of you guys know that being an alpine climber is an incredibly time-consuming uh, sport, right? It takes a lot of time to be good enough to be able to be safe in the mountains. And in order to do mountain rescue, you have to be a pretty good alpine climber. And really, in order to be a mom, you really have to be there for your kid when she's awake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and none of that stuff actually even counts as like that thing that I do because I, I don't get paid for any of that stuff, right? Like when I go to a dinner party and somebody asks what I do and I say I'm a stay-at-home mom, like nobody wants to sit next to me. Uh, but it's incongruous, you know? And um, it's really disconcerting actually switching back and forth between all of these things. And I don't really know how to describe that pivot any better than I do in the book. So I've got a, a short reading from a chapter where we just spent a couple of days recovering the body of a girlfriend of one of our members uh, who was really well-loved by the local ski community. And she fell 800 feet down the backside of Red Mountain as a result of a cornice failure. So this reading is just after we finished the recovery. When we get back to Alpental, it's three in the morning, and it's still dark and still snowing, and tired people stand all over the lot, and I lose Kaylee and Russ somewhere in the crowd of folks that are leaving. And on the one hand, like, I, I don't think that we need to say anything to each other. Like, we, we all just need to go home and get a couple hours of sleep. But at the same time, I wish we did say something. And it's almost five before I finish the paperwork and drive back, alternating between using the defrost while shivering violently and turning on the heat while peering out the fogged windshield. And I fill the gas tank and park SMR2 next to a car that, thanks to the jaws of life, has just become a convertible, its roof lying upside down next to it, filling with water like a kid's wading pool. But I can't get out of the driver's seat. It's freezing outside, dark and silent, raining, but it isn't the cold that keeps me here. I'm not sure what to do next. Yeah, how to bear witness to someone else's story when that story intercepts mine. Like, what do I do as an emergency worker? And what do I do as a friend? If this is a job, 
then I do my best to create a space to make sure that the people in the story can do what they need to do. And then I step back and let them grieve with their support network. Like anything more than that would be intrusive. And as part of their community, I, the, the same thing, I suppose. Like maybe make a casserole. And by eight, I'm gonna be home making waffles and doing laundry for Vivi and Russell. And that's okay because I have to keep going. But part of me just wants to hold on to the weight of this day, of this series of days, because it's more important than the laundry or the search for a way to make money. Like, death is supposed to connect people, and I find that I'm hugging the steering column with my face pressed against the wheel like a baby monkey in a documentary on attachment disorder that I watched once in school, and all I want to do is be held and not feel alone. And a few days later, they had a memorial ski for Monica on Red Mountain. I know because I saw the pictures on Facebook. I hope they brought whiskey and skied off the right side of the mountain. And I asked Vivian to go for a walk with me. And she wears her ladybug boots and carries her monogrammed yellow umbrella. And she wants to know why I didn't bring an umbrella too since it's still pouring rain. And I say, because the rain is the only continuous thing between the two disparate worlds that I live in, and it's an awkward transition back and forth. I say, because I want my worlds to bridge together at least one point, and this is the only common factor that I know. And I think for another minute and say, I want to be involved and to hurt and to know that I'm human. I want to be connected to other people. I want to be vested in this world and do the kind of work that you do with someone like, for someone that you love. Vivi says, I want an orange kitten with white spots. Yeah, I say, smiling and reaching for a hand. I hope what we get what we want. Until then, let's walk. So, can I just ask, like, how, how many moms are there in the audience tonight? Raise your hand. Oh, oh my God, hi. Come meet me later. <laughs> so, I don't, I don't actually know that, that many moms. And, um... Actually, I, I did an interview uh, last week, and, and they asked me if I have any advice for moms uh, <laughs> who, uh, who may do crazy things in the wilderness where you cannot bring your child, but then who also have children and how they reconcile that. And I, I said, I have no advice whatsoever, <laughs> right? My daughter's eight. Uh, maybe in 10 years, she'll be able to tell me in exacting detail, right, everything that I, I should or should not have done in order to parent her correctly. And so maybe in 10 years, I, I will have that advice. But for right now, if any of you guys come talk to me later, because if you have advice for me, I want it. Um, a couple of months ago, there was a, a woman who was hiking Tenerife, and she um, she lost the trail and, and thought that she could find a way up the side of the waterfall. And she slipped and fell to her death at the bottom. And I was home with Vivian when I got the call and I was running around the house getting my backpack in the car and I, I, I was out there and Vivian came running out the front door and she said, mommy, mommy, wait, you left your body bag on top of the dryer. <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing as a parent? <laughs> right? Oh no. 
Um, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to lie to her about what it is that I do. But, I mean, I, I, think, I think that all, through all the, the ages of this world, right, like, death was a really familiar thing to us. Like, and, and because we dealt with it, like, all of us dealt with it all the time, like, we, we had a, a really clear idea of... Um, of what to do, you know, like we had rituals and we had traditions and, and we knew how to touch people. And I feel like in the modern age, like there's this huge separation where now if you see a dead person, it's, it's traumatic, you know, and, and, and I don't know what happened to that culture, but I, I, don't, I don't have it. I feel like I'm reinventing it actually. So again, if anyone has anything for me later, I'm more than happy, but I, I feel like I actually, I want to pass on, you know, what I've managed to cobble together to her because I feel like knowledge is power. And, um, and so she's, she's really, she's privy to a lot of stuff. And um, I, have a, I have a short reading about that too. Yeah, okay, so uh, this is when Vivian was four. And Vivian's enrolled in the Little Rockers program at the local climbing gym and she and her classmates take turns making their way up to touch the coveted Tyrannosaurus hold. And other times, the instructors hang a rope from the ceiling like a giant swing, and the kids spend the hour careening back and forth. And I take pictures, and I get a photo of her swinging upside down, my spread-eagled fledgling in a state of bliss. And I collect these images because moms have to document everything. But, but these photos don't convey how proud I am or how scared I am that she'll become a climber. And after her first week of lessons, one of the instructors went climbing in the Alpine Lakes wilderness in my home on his days off. And coming down, he rappelled off the end of his rope and fell to his death. And I'd met this man, Ross, a, a number of times while at the gym when he was putting up routes. And he wore a muscle shirt and headphones. And I was assumed that he was listening to dance tunes, but I'm shy, and so we'd never, ever met. We've never spoken. And we weren't sure where Ross had landed, somewhere on Infinite Bliss, which is a route that winds its way up Mount Garfield. His climbing partner had set a ledge, uh, ledge on pitch 10, or, or maybe pitch 13, but for sure it was below pitch 23. And his partner had spent the night there, next to his body, and then she'd come down alone, making too many repels to count, hiking out through the silent, damp woods, climbing over rotten deadfall, following a long mud track back to the highway. And the route's 2,600 feet of almost seamless granite. The steepest pitch is 10C, which is far below the ability of experts with natural talent and athletes sponsored by climbing shoe manufacturers and AMGA-certified ride guides. But it isn't off-the-couch terrain for most folks either. And it has some long runouts, which would be longer if the bolts were missing. And there was no small measure of rain starting. And we're only as good as we are. Like half the time, I go out to train when Vivian goes to bed, and I end up sitting alone on a log at midnight with wet running shoes, just trying to find the energy to get home, let alone work on cardio. So we decided that we would come back with more light. And we weren't afraid, except for the unknown number of broken bolts and the possibility that more chunks of rock might calve off and come at us in the dark and except for actually finding him. Because we've found people lots of times, but those experiences haven't made us any less wary. He died 
I tell Vivian when I get home that night. When my fish dies, you said we could get a cat. I want a cat with orange spots, she says. She's sitting on my lap with her eyes an inch from mine, and she's breathing on my nose. She's never even had a pet fish die. You'd be really sad if I died, I tell her. His family's really sad, like that. And she's quiet for a minute. If Daddy died, we could have a cat and a fish at the same time. (laughs) I hold her in my arms with her body against mine and my nose crushed into her ear because this is how communicating with her happens, with intimacy and fear and effort. And after a few minutes, I tell her, Grandma is going to pick you up from preschool tomorrow. And in the morning, headed to infinite bliss, I finally have to turn my windshield wipers on. But I wait as long as I can first, peering through the windshield while the road distorts into wavy streaks, because I know that if I turn them on, I'll have to acknowledge that it's still raining. And Taylor, geologist turned MBA student, and Darby of the police tattoo, and I meet at the start of the closed road. I'm a little nervous because the three of us have never climbed together before, because I woke up with a nasty head cold, and because Taylor says that he's dislocated his shoulder again this week and he can't lift it higher than his head. But he's confident that it's getting loose enough that if it pops out, I can help him pop it back in again. (laughs) I see Ross's shoe before I see him, lying under a weather-beaten tree at the edge of one of the few ledges. And Ed gave me a camera and I document everything for the medical examiner. But the photos don't convey what happened. To do this thing is to know the smell of blood running down granite as well as you know the smell of piss. Only a climber can look at a climber's fingers and survey the rock and trace the fall. And I touch his blade of ice first, kneeling under the tree with my feet above another thousand feet of space, which is just as easy to fall through. And I look for the same things every time. I touch the gate on the beaners and look for knots and gouges and fraying and backups and double backing and shoes and gloves and everything and the absence of things. And I lift Ross in my arms, his body against mine, because only a climber can get a climber back. And this is how that happens, the way that everything happens in the mountains, with intimacy and fear and effort. It's not an act that you forget. And Vivian took Ross's death better than I did, because whatever I'd managed to convey to her, she didn't pause. Days later, she broke her tiny arm bouldering. Jumping down, she extended spread eagle and whacked her elbow and broke her humerus in two places. And I watched her do it, and she barely cried, and it took serious investigation to find out that she was really injured. Like, she's still my baby, but she's got the grit, and it terrifies me. She's got a hot pink cast up to her armpit, and she immediately figured out how to wedge it in the jungle gym at school and dead hang off it. (laughs) So there's the kid thing. And then there's just the struggle, right? There's just the struggle as its own holistic thing. And I think that the struggle is beautiful. Knowing that you can struggle for a long time and then lose makes it even more poignant. And I give credit if I could remember who it was that said this, but on NPR last week, somebody said that tragedies are okay, that people love tragedies, and that is why Hamlet is so popular. <laughs> and, and I think it's true. I think failing hard things sometimes, it's okay. 
And who are any of us to pass judgment? All that stuff on Facebook, like it's always happy all the time, like that's not, that's not, that's fake. That's not the human condition, right? That's, uh, it's not real. And, um, and so I've been, I've been watching the struggle, like studying the struggle for a really long time. And I've seen two things that I used to think were really incongruous, but, but now I don't. And the first thing is that people are way physically and emotionally stronger than we give them credit for. We are physically and emotionally way stronger than we give ourselves credit for. Whether that's lead climbing and overhanging roof pitch at Vertical World Seattle, or crawling towards help for three days after falling off of a cliff and becoming paralyzed for the week from the waist down, or just heading out on the trail despite debilitating depression. Like, we pull off these things that no one else, and oftentimes we ourselves don't think that we're capable of, but we are. And I get called out all the time. And for 20 years, I've been getting called out for people. And I have a really good sense of what's survivable and what's not. But I get called out for people that I am sure are dead. And I get there. And they're not, <laughs> all the time. Like, people are so strong. And at the same time, people are incredibly fragile. Sometimes even the strongest people suddenly die. And these are not different types of people. Like, we are both of these things all the time, both incredibly strong and incredibly vulnerable. And who we are and what element of that ends up coming out is based on who's around us, like how we interact with each other, and what we expect of each other, and how we support each other, especially in a crisis. And uh, one thing that I've, I've noticed with SMR is that um, if we come in as professionals, and we designate ourselves as a strong and capable half, and we start to get preachy, <laughs> what we're doing is with one fell swoop, that would be devaluing the incredible strength and knowledge base of the people that we're going to go get. And also, we lose the ability to connect empathically with the needs of that person. And that would also just be disingenuous, right? Because we're not professionals. Um, we're just climbers and people who deal with the same struggles um, that everyone else does. And our goal with SMR is just to be with you when you need someone to be with you, especially if you need someone to be with you so that you don't die alone, or because your partner just did, or maybe because you sprained your ankle and you just need someone to splint it so you can get back out in six to eight weeks. And, and the work can be hard, but trying to figure out how to be there for someone in a way that doesn't patronize their soul is even harder. And, it isn't always just about the person who had the accident. It's actually figuring out how to bridge what sometimes becomes an enormous hole in the community. So I thought of reading about that too. Later, Jen said she was told that there were four kids hiking together and three of them climbed up to the top of the waterfall and they got stuck, each in his own place on the undulating, damp rock. And one fell and tumbled down the face and landed in the rocks at the base of the pool. And the boy that hadn't climbed rushed around the pool and jumped into the water and held the other's head up. 
And he said that his friend had been talking in the beginning, but then he stopped. And after some time, a second boy couldn't hang on any longer and fell. And then the boy that hadn't climbed was holding onto both of them, not strong enough to pull them out of the water. And somehow the third boy climbed back down, and some hikers met him running out and heard the story. And one of them had a Forest Service radio and called out for help, which is how Alindi found out. And then the hikers went back, and they managed to drag one boy out of the water, and they made a bonfire and sat with both kids while they were dying because there was nothing else that they could do either. And the third boy kept running, and he ran into Kaylee just as Kaylee arrived at the trailhead. And the helicopter finally found a spot and winched down a paramedic in a black jumpsuit and another guy in an orange jumpsuit. And this paramedic was a man of few words. Okay, he's dead, he said to me, the kid's brother standing at my shoulder. And then he turned away. And I got pissed about it later. I called the paramedic after a week because I thought that he should have said something to the dead kid's brother, a word or an explanation. Once I heard an interview on NPR about a paramedic who'd been at the scene of a crime where a woman had just been bludgeoned to death with a baseball bat by her daughter's boyfriend in the middle of the night, and he just kept yawning because it was late and because this hasn't anything that he hadn't seen before. But then afterward, he worried that he was losing some part of his ability to feel empathy, to feel connected, and that scared him. He quit. But this paramedic explained to me over the phone that he was a professional paramedic as his day job. He was a real first responder, and he dealt with death every day, and I wouldn't understand. He felt that I was having a problem with what I saw because I was unused to death. And he told me that death bothers people who aren't used to it, and that I was an amateur. And both boys were dead, and the paramedic in the orange jumpsuit thanked us for helping them out and winched back into their helicopter and flew off. My crew that night was two med students, a children's librarian, an engineer, and the dead boy's brother, and three shirtless hikers. Shirtless because they'd pulled off their t-shirts for bandages and used one to make a tourniquet with a stick as a windlass. And we sat down together on the ground in a huddle and watched the fire. And the brother, who looked like he was maybe 15, was quiet, and we were quiet but I should have said something, explained something, or else I'm a hypocrite to wish that the medic had, but I'm an amateur and I couldn't find the language. I mean, I could talk about the process of death, but it wasn't about the physical anymore. Now I wanted some words to say, or a tradition of something, some sort to mark the gravitas of death, some action that humans do for each other in this moment, to do the thing that their parents would want but I didn't know what that thing would be, and I didn't want to do the wrong thing. And so we just sat together with our backs hunched against the night until Base finally said we could start. And I should have had Steve stay with us instead of organizing for the evac because maybe he would have known what to say. And the body bags never showed up, but the ESAR folks had brought some blue tarps, and we wrapped the body on the near side of the pool. And I asked the brother to go out with Steve because being with Steve is the most stable place on nights like this. And then the rest of us went to get the other boy back from the rocks on the far side of the pool. And the pool's edge felt slimy, low fifth class climbing in the dark at the limit of trail running shoes. And slipping meant falling into the pool, which was stagnant and instantly deep enough to be opaque. The brother said it was deeper than his head, and I was not going to touch the water. 
but there was no other way that we could carry the boy across the rock. Aaron looked for a place to put an anchor above our heads so that we could rig a rope system, but he found nothing. There was no other way. Aaron groaned and pushed his body back against the rock as far from the water as possible. And I don't hug people very often, but Aaron and I held each other for a minute because some things need the courage of more than one person, or maybe because we're amateurs. Jen just stared at her hands, wearing fingerless leather rope gloves with purple nightshell gloves underneath. Her fingers looked purple. They look inhuman, she said to me. They're not, I said back. Finally, we asked the ESAR people if any of them had an air mattresses. They usually carry at least some camping gear. And I could see blood in the water. Blood like creamer descended into coffee and then diffusing. And I couldn't tell if it was the fire or the blood that made the whole green pool look red. The multitudinous seas in Carnadine. As my friends worked, I kept saying, you can do this, you're okay, you're doing good work. But I didn't know if I was really talking to them or to myself. We got the boy to the other side, and we extinguished the fire, and it was cold, but it was a relief. And I didn't try to hike out with either letter team. Everyone was self-sufficient at this point, and they could call me on the radio if they needed anything. I walked out by myself, between them. We got back to the trailhead at 10 minutes past 3 in the morning. Everyone melted away, headed to work, and I didn't see them again. Just headed for the command van and started my part of the paperwork. I wrote a two-page report that said nothing. I drove out of the parking lot at 4.30, feeling jealous of the people who had to go to work because for them there was some purpose in this next day, some goal that they could focus on achieving. And maybe that's as simple as if you have to keep moving, even when you're exhausted, at least you don't have to stop. Or maybe it's like when Vivian was a baby and she was colicky and she would scream all day and all night and all I wanted was to stop listening to the screaming. And the idea of going to work actually seemed like it would be a relief it was too early to go to my mom's to visit Vivian, so I went home and quietly closed the front door behind me. When the morning sun comes through the window into my daughter's yellow room, it hits the wall and glows crinkly and gold under the Milky Way, and her pillow smells like her drool and banana hair conditioner. And I climbed into her bed and spooned her three-foot-tall stuffed penguin, and I couldn't sleep, but spent a long time staring at the wall, just thinking how beautiful the sunlight was. And I also looked up the definition of amateur, and it means unskilled person. And it also means someone who loves something. So, in, <laughs> yeah. so in, in nursing school, um, they spend a lot of time talking about self-care. Uh, which is actually really funny because they don't give you any time to do any of it. <laughs> but they definitely discuss the concept of the idea of self-care. Um, and so people always ask me, like, why I can't deal, dial back on, on the rescues and actually, you know, more easily accomplish the things that I need to accomplish in the rest of my life. Um, because really, uh, you know, it is just volunteer work, and it's, it's not as important as a career or school or my family. But I think that rescuing people is my self-care. It's definitely where I feel physically and definitely emotionally the safest. 
and all of the other elements of my life are about being able to have enough to give. And with Seattle Mountain Rescue, like it's, it's giving, but it's also a give and take. Like we've, we've created a culture of caring for each other as much as for caring for the community. And it's really amazing just to feel supported too. Um, so I have, I have one more reading and that's about that. It's the third rescue that we did in, in a row in one day. And this is for a guy who was stuck on Guy Peak. I walk back into the living room where my laptop glows blue in the dark, and I take a deep breath and exhale completely while closing the screen. And I feel myself leaving. And it's not sleep, but it's like rest, going out the door and driving through the night, a tiny dry capsule in a world saturated with water, hurtling towards my best friends in the world. And I love the cold. I love the struggle, the realness, the ridiculousness, and the tenderness of it. Like, rescue missions are not actually work, like, not a career, and money and power and prestige mean nothing out here. It's not a vocation. It's an avocation. And I don't know why it took me so long to find the words to hold it up against. This is just what I do for love, for taking the time to be with someone who needs someone to be with them. I'm working on the career stuff, but for a few minutes, I just need it to be us standing together in the dark. And there's nobody in the Snow Lake parking lot. And it takes me half an hour of driving around to find everybody parked in a residential neighborhood turnaround at the end of a spur road a half mile away. And the county van has its floodlights illuminating the rain. And behind it is a few quiet, hardy homeowners who sit huddled around a bonfire, drinking at 3 AM on a Saturday morning in May, their houses bright with white party lights. And I feel, I feel an almost manic happiness. Like I, I want to breathe in the smoke from the fire and this coldest kind of metallic mountain rain, the dustiness of the moths zapped in the blinding floodlights under the RV's awning, and remember it all together. Hold on to that feeling when I have to go back. And I can taste my own gratefulness to be here. I get drunk on it. I have to lean against Kaylee's car to refocus, and the slight jar causes water to run down the condensation-fogged window. Kaylee's probably asleep in the back seat and just got dripped on. McCall is sitting alone in the van, staring at a photocopy of a photo of Guy Peak marked up with a highlighter. Hey, I say, and as soon as I see him, I realize that I haven't seen McCall since we were, to get, were together at a dinner at Larry's house with the hopes of decompressing a little bit after finding his cousin Doug's body in the avalanche back in January. Or maybe I saw him at the memorial service after that, but it's, it's been a while, and I'm glad he's here. McCall looks sleepy. Kaylee lurches into the truck looking sleepy too. I must have woken him up. I love the way that people look when they just wake up. Like, sure, they're blurry and puffy, but it's so nice to be with people who don't care what they look like. And I laugh because they're so disheveled, and they laugh because I'm laughing, because they don't know why I'm laughing. And 90% of the energy in the van is mine. So this guy, I say, where is he exactly? What's the story? Okay, says McCall. So this is for a firefighter paramedic who thought that he was hiking Mount Snoqualmie, but he made a wrong turn and ended up on Guy instead. And then, instead of going back down the way he came up, he tried hiking down the shoulder and ended up down climbing pretty close to the middle of the face, about a third of the way down, where he finally realized he was stuck and called 911. 
he says he's a climber and a parkour expert. And I guess that must have helped him get there because he's in kind of a tough spot. Yeah, says Kaylee, so we were out looking at the face earlier and Ed had the dude on speakerphone and the dude was pretty casual about it and Ed tells him to turn his phone's flashlight on so that we can see if we can spot it, find him with a spotting scope. And he does, and all the guys who were standing around in base were like, oh shit, at the same time. And I'm not sure that Ed muffled his phone fast enough. Because <laughs> the guy was a little more subdued after that. <laughs> so Guy Peak is right next to Alpental. And the man is stuck in the middle of the biggest obvious face directly above the parking lot. And even though that's not way in the backcountry, this place is notorious for imposing rescuer difficulty. The rock quality is kind of crap, and the anchors are scarce, and all of our ropes get hung up on the weirdly angular rock and the tiny roots that reach out like gnarled fingers from the black moss that grows in the cracks. And large sections of it are not quite vertical, just steep ledges covered with black moss nine inches thick. And the weather is frequently kind of crappy, and fog hangs in the basin even when it isn't raining, uh, but now it's raining. He kept calling periodically, but his phone died a couple hours ago, says McCall. He's on a tiny ledge holding onto a scrub tree. He doesn't have a backpack, he's wearing sweatpants, and the snow line has come down. He said he was soaked, and it started snowing pretty hard since the last time we talked. Uh, although, he's got one of those emergency bracelets made out of parachute cord, and Ed told him to unravel it and use it to tie himself to the scrub tree in case he passes out. <laughs> Don't people untie themselves from stuff when they get super hypothermic, asked Kaylee. Maybe his hands will get frozen enough he won't be able to untie himself, I say. <laughs> you have a better suggestion you could have contributed, says McCall, starting to wave his arms around in exasperation. Nah, I say, let's just go get him. So um, that's... That's pretty much it for me. I, I, I'm really grateful. Let me, before you guys leave, I just I want to say how grateful I really am to have had the opportunity to talk to everybody tonight. Um, for the last 20 years, I've been completely amazed at how kind the outdoor uh, community is here in Seattle and how often I've seen people really reaching out for each other and creating a thoughtful chapter in history for this small spot on the map. And I'm super proud to be a part of SMR and to be a part of this community. Thank you for trusting us to do this job. Thanks for the Mountaineers Books for publishing Found. And thanks to all the current and former SAR folks who came out to help with this event. And uh, if I could, I know that there's a lot of current and former SAR folks from one group or another here tonight. Could everybody stand up? I've got a captive audience, and you guys deserve a round of applause. Ready? Thank you, Bree. Uh, we actually, if we could bring the lights up, um, we have a few moments if we have questions uh, for Bree about SMR, her book. Um, please don't be shy, and uh, we'll take some questions from the audience if you have any. Well, I will get us started because I have a very specific question, and it's kind of remarkable that I haven't asked you this. 
But it has been about 10 years, um, almost 10 years, not quite, since Pickett's and Denman was published. And that was about being a climbing ranger at Rainier. And now we have Seattle Mountain Rescue. And I'm curious, in that intervening time, how has your perspective on the outdoors and on rescue changed? I think it's, it's, it's a process. I think that there's, there's been so many amazing people that I've met. I've had so many amazing mentors, both at the Park Service and with SMR. And I think it's, it's been largely a virtue, too, of, of having the opportunity to do this work. Um, I, I don't actually know how many rescues I've been on. Uh, I did 34, I think, last year, and over 100 in the last three years. But over my career, I don't know. And um, I learned something new on each one. I learned from the community. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's constantly evolving. Questions for Bree? Yeah. How would you describe the general personality profile of the person you like to be in SMR? So the the question is uh, describing the personality of an average uh, SMR volunteer, and I think that the average personality is definitely being a giver. Um, giving your time, giving uh, back to the community. Most people volunteer for more than one organization. We've got loads of overlap between SMR and the Mountaineers, but we've got overlap between um, you know, all kinds of volunteering for schools and volunteering for animal shelters, and we're like chronic volunteers, I would say, it's, yeah. Also, definitely having more of a medical background is going to help me. Like, I've been an EMT for a really long time, but, you know, the more knowledge that I can bring into the backcountry, the, the better it's going to be. And those are skills that are going to be really valuable. Um, but then I think uh, it's been really amazing being able to take some of what I learned in SMR and apply it to nursing school. Um, uh, you know, when they talk about stopping bleeding, like, I got that down. <laughs> so, yeah. How old were you when you went on your first rescue? So I started uh, doing search and rescue in King County when I was 15. Um, and I actually, I did my first body recovery when I was 15, too, um, which may have slightly altered my personality. But the, <laughs> the one thing that I, I really respected about the folks that let me do that was that I feel like we kind of extend childhood sometimes but this was a real job like somebody actually trusted me with doing something that's really important to humanity and I think that when you trust young people with a job like that like they really rise to the occasion and um, uh, King County actually has a, a group that accept, accepts people who are 14 and up, and, uh, and it's definitely, it's incredible life experience, and uh, a lot of folks end up in med school, so if you're interested in that, you should, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we're in, oh, yeah, so uh, the question is, uh, are we a charity? And, and we are a 501c3 nonprofit, yes. Uh, so no one in SMR is paid. We're all volunteers. 
We're all on call 24 seven, 365 days a year. I can't remember offhand how many rescues we did last year, but it, it was about 160. Um, so it's, it's a really significant number. Um, and we're actually getting busier and busier. Uh, each year that goes by is our busiest year ever. Um, we had a 6% increase in rescues last year and a 36% increase over the past five years. So it's um, as the population grows, so our, our workload grows, which is, which is totally amazing, right? Like I think it, it's really huge. People need to be able to explore the wilderness in order to want to save it. So, um, you know, and, and there's a learning curve, right, to, to going out into the woods. And, and we're more than happy to, to help facilitate people's learning curve if it means that they're going to be out there and love the wilderness too. So. Well, you know, it, it's changed a little bit over the years. The, the question was, what's the most preventable accident that you see? And I think the reality is that, uh, you know, we, we like to say that people do stupid things in the woods all the time, but, but they don't. They really don't. Like, most of the accidents that we see are just by virtue of the fact that there's so many people out there, someone's going to trip on a particular day. Like, we don't we don't really see people doing stupid stuff except like the really odd one-off. Um, it used to be that the easiest preventable thing was people would go do sunset hikes and wouldn't bring a flashlight. But with the smartphone, now you've got the flashlight, so those have decreased significantly, which no one is sad about. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, so the, the question is um, about helping girls find their voice as writers and uh, what my writing process was in writing found and what my writing process was as a younger person. Um, I, I loved poetry when I was younger, so I'm kind of going longer form as an adult. Uh, I wrote found in three months, um, which is well, I wrote my first book in, in about two weeks, so, uh, but that was a little bit angsty. My, um, my team leader had died in an avalanche, and so it was kind of out of grief of the situation that, that I wrote Pickets and Dead Men. Uh, but with Found, I spent 10 years thinking about how to write to stories, um, and I, I wrote a lot of things down, and then, um, you know, they never went anywhere. I was sort of afraid to put them out there. And I, I really had to wait until, until I was ready, until I knew what I wanted to say and how to say it. And then I had three months off from school before I started nursing school. And I knew I, I was going to get it out there. And it, it, I was writing a chapter a day for a lot of it. Uh, it, was, it was time. And, um, and I, I think I really write um, as a way to process the events that happen, and so uh, for me, it, it, it's got a pretty easy flow. Like I, I wish I had time to write more because I would write more. Okay, Bria is going to head to the back of the room where she's going to sign books, and you can purchase them. And remember that all the sales tonight benefit Seattle Mountain Rescue, who we all need very much.
But thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Bree. And she'll be back there ready to talk to you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Bree Lowen's new book is Found, A Life in Mountain Rescue. She spoke at the Mountaineers Seattle Program Center at Magnuson Park on June 7th. Tune in again soon.